You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. And this is going to be a different show than normal. Um, I host the public affairs show in Indianapolis uh, on the local radio stations, the cluster. I work for an iHeart cluster, and it's called Now Hear This. You can listen on the podcast feed if you're, you're out of town. Uh, and what I try to do with it is describe the problem that nonprofits are solving and how they're solving it. So it's not necessarily a local show while most of the people are local. And uh, I've been really pushing to do a lot of shows around COVID-19 and how that's impacting the community. And I normally just put that in the feed and leave it up there, but I just finished an interview with the Children's Bureau and I feel like this is a show that this is an episode that that everybody needs to listen to because many of us are many of us are really lucky and really privileged to live in the places and the way that we do. And we talked a little bit about, you know, in the last episode, not, you know, not living in 1918, but the level of misery that is taking place right now for so many people is so, uh, profound, and it's not just because of the economic situation or the disease, it's both. And what I think you hear in these conversations with various organizations is that level of misery. And I think it, it's something that, you know, I do the show with Miss Pat, and she grew up in, a, in, in the inner city of Atlanta, and she goes, Chris, what you don't understand is that there are a lot of people in this country that are not concerned about the things that you're concerned about because they're living the experience you're having right now every single day. And I think we need to be reminded of that need a lot of times for perspective and also because it shows us that we need to help and we need to be part of the solution and be out in our communities right now leading efforts in nonprofits, raising money, raising blood drives, raising goods, uh, because the need right now is so incredibly great and it is hard to hear and it is hard to imagine that people are going through what they're going through. Uh, and I think you will hear that in the first 15 minutes of this. It is uh, impactful. And the fights on the internet that we all have every day are really a waste of time. And the conversation about 
my rights and liberties are being taken from me is an important one that we ought to have, but we are missing the moment to get out into our communities and be leaders and to help solve the actual problems that are going on instead of spending it all day on Twitter. Uh, this was just a, uh, this, this episode, I think, is one of the most important episodes that we've brought to you because you need to hear what's happening and you need to understand what's happening in the community. And it's going to be happening for a long time. It would have happened whether the government acted or not. A pandemic means that people were always going to get sick and people were always going to be out of work. And what faces us in the years to come is what you're about to hear. And every single person in this audience has to make a choice. Am I going to use my privileged position to help others and to leverage that into easing the misery that is taking place around us? Or am I going to ignore the moment that I could have changed lives? So many of these organizations, you're free and welcome to, to support and donate. If you're not from Indiana, I guarantee there is a version of it in your town, city, county, state. Uh, so I would ask that you reach out. And whatever you're passionate about, that nonprofit right now desperately needs your money, time, help, volunteerism, in whatever way they can get it. Uh, so please consider helping and consider getting out in the, the community and making an impact where you can be impactful because you're probably not changing lives on Facebook. This is where you can change lives. So thank you so much for listening, and I appreciate everyone's time, and I appreciate you listening to this program. An enormous issue that our next guest is tackling is Tina Clore, who is the CEO of the Children's Bureau, and their website is childrensbureau.org. Tina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Please tell us what the Children's Bureau does. What do you do? So Children's Bureau is one of the oldest nonprofits in the city. Um, we were founded in 1851, and we provide services to prevent child abuse and also services to help intervene um, after child abuse or neglect has occurred in a family. And in our interview with Kids Voice, they mentioned that there has been uh, a significant uptick in child abuse, but it's rap rapidly unreported. What are you hearing? What are you seeing out in the community? Um, the number of child abuse calls coming in is, has uh, decreased drastically um, because school's not in, people are not, kids are not out um, and about now. They're more or less trapped in their homes. Um, but what we do know is that the calls that are coming in are tragic. Um, they're coming from hospitals um, with um, kids ha basically ha being deceased or having uh, fatal injuries. Wow. Okay. Um, I imagine, can you explain why there's a decrease in calls if we're seeing an uptick in that kind of violence? Um, it, it's because the mandatory reporters that would normally be seeing those kids and families out at school, at their therapist's office, you know, just in the normal course of action or other family members um, who would be coming into contact with their relatives who are, um, who they believe are being abused or neglected are no longer seeing them. So the stay at home order um, really has isolated victims of domestic violence in those situations. And those homes are more stressed than they've ever been um, because of a lot of financial stressors. So uh, it's just 
a, a very frightening time um, in terms of the well-being of our kids and other victims of domestic violence in the community. So when we say child abuse, what does that look like and what forms does that express itself and what would a mandatory reporter like a therapist or a school teacher, what would they see? How would you know that a child is being abused? Um, well, it can range from the kids not having their basic needs met and being neglected, from them not being supervised and being left home alone, to all the way up to um, pretty um, violent acts of physical abuse and sexual abuse. Um, you know, we're going to see and we are seeing, you know, a huge decrease in what's being reported, but the cases that are coming in are just really tragic levels of physical and sexual abuse. Can you give some context to the order of magnitude? What's what's the difference between what you may have seen two months ago versus what you're seeing now in some of these numbers that you're talking about? Well, the numbers are, um, they come out a month behind. So we don't have a full month's numbers yet. But what we know from talking to um, our partners at the Department of Child Services is that largely their phones aren't ringing. They're getting very few calls, um, but that the ones that are coming in are coming in largely from the only people who would be seeing these kids um, in those kind of situations, which are our first responders in the hospitals. So, man, that, that's such a tough problem to solve. I mean, if you are a neighbor, I would imagine that the 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 person listening that may have some uh, suspicions of some sort, maybe a neighbor or a loved one. How, yeah. how, what advice would you give to those people who have some level of suspicion? Because it's it's a it's a hard thing to call DCS and make an accusation, and it's it's you know where what level would you say you should if you're concerned take action? What we've really been encouraging people to do is to lay eyes on the kids in your life. Um, so for all the providers who are still, cause you know, we're all still working instead of just delivering um, food and help with that. We actually physically ask the kids to come out so that we can lay eyes on them. So we're encouraging everybody who can to lay eyes on the children around you um, in your life. If you're a relative, often you already know that you're um, that the kids in your family or circle of influence may have, Often, you know, when there are troubles there and this situation with COVID-19 just escalates that. So, you know, we encourage um, them to text the kids and see what's going on so that if they can't say something out loud, they could say it through text or messaging um, to get them on uh, Skype and take a look at them and make sure they look okay. Um, that if you haven't heard from your family members in a while um, and you know that they're potentially in an abusive situation that you... Um, check in on them and if you have grave fears you contact DCS or um, the police for a, for a welfare check you know all those systems are still working um, and and your providers are still here we're just having to do work differently so um, if people are concerned they, and, and they think they see something they need to say something um, and and make sure that you contact the people who can provide help so at what point are you brought into the process? How does Children's Bureau get involved in the life of a child? So on the prevention side, we get calls from families every day who are asking for help in getting what they need to take care of their kids. Um, that's one of the primary things that we do. We partner with Department of Child Services, who actually funds that 
project along with um, some grantors. So uh, families call us and basically let us know that they need um, things to be able to care for their kids. Like right now during this epidemic, um, in some parts of the state, there aren't diapers available on the shelves. You know, your, your town is small enough that it may only have a Walmart. <laughs> and if Walmart doesn't have them, you can't get them. So we have been um, shipping those around the state and, and disseminating them um, often to the um, food banks and diaper banks and stuff like that so that we can push them out to the families who need them. So we do a lot of that kind of work in terms of helping families get their basic needs met. Um, we're helping people with food and hygiene supplies, you know, just all kinds of things like that in communities across central Indiana. We call that pro that program is called community partners for child safety. So it's a prevention program and people can just call and ask for help. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of work. And then, um, the other side of what we do is, um, providing, um, assistance and intervention after some kind of abuse or neglect has happened. So those cases get to us because DCS calls after something's happened in a family and we may be providing foster care for a child. We um, are often going out into homes of parents who have a history of abusing and neglecting their kids and we're trying to teach them to be better parents. Um, in this current situation, we're also checking on those kids to make sure they're safe um, and they have what they need. So um, there are a number of different ways that people um, begin receiving services from Children's Bureau. What's the best way for a listener to help you? Is it is it a volunteer situation, cash donations, donation of goods? What's the best way for people to get involved in your work? So we operate um, three shelters here in Indy for kids. Um, one of them we just opened this week is called um, Project Courage, and it's a shelter that is caring for the children of people who, of adults who've been affected by COVID-19 and are hospitalized um, or too ill to care for their kids. Um, so all three shelters have an ongoing um, need for things that, it, that you need to take care of kids. So our website, um, if you go to that under the donate section um, and, look, and open it up, there are actually lists of items that we need for the various programs um, to help meet the needs of those kids. So People can either donate resources or they can um, go on there and choose items off our Amazon list and it'll ship it straight to us and we can get it to the kids in the shelters. Can you give an example of some of the items that might be needed? Um, yeah. So typically um, we are able to accept donated clothes and things like that that are um, gently used. But right now we can't because of all the concern about infection and we're not allowed to have uh, people in our building. So um, the kids are coming to us with only the clothes on their backs, so we need um, at least a spare outfit for each one of those kids. So there's a lot of clothing items on there, um, diapers, wipes. Um, our kids, uh, some of them are well, in one in, in one of the shelters, all of the kids have been exposed to the virus, and some are sick. So we're having to set those rooms up like hospital rooms and tr and isolate the kids in quarantine. So we are asking for uh, crafts and coloring books and games, things they can do by themselves because um, they're going to be spending 14 days in isolation. Um, so, you know, if you can imagine, that's difficult. And we have kids as young, right now, as young as two in that shelter. Um, so it's just getting the things that we need. We basically um, started getting a lot of those calls for um, 
from hospitals and first responders with kids that needed someplace safe um, to be while their parents um, and caregivers were recovering. So we um, put the shelter together and and on some level are building it as we go in terms of getting um, some of the rest of those things that we need just to keep things running. How many kids are we talking and what kind of age ranges? Uh, We have kids, we take kids from birth to 18. And um, between the three shelters, we have about 60, 65 beds right now. And these are kids whose parents, there's no, their parent, their single parent gets sick and then there's no other family member that's able to care for them? Well, we had, we, there's some of that. Um, there's also, uh, we've had, there are a lot of grandparents raising kids right now because of our years of um, going through the um, Opi- opiate epidemic and addiction ep- epidemic. So we've had cases where both grandparents were in the hospital. One grandparent died. We were waiting for the other one to get out um, to be able to take the kids back. So we get that. We've had um, single parents. Um, who are hospitalized, we have, you know, right now family is pretty loosely defined. There are a lot of different versions of kinship care happening with different folks raising kids. Um, And, and so we're supporting them um, by helping out with, with the kids. So it's really almost every situation you can think of um, in terms of who is in need of that. And some of them are people who um, would be people that typically live in poverty and some of them are not. Some of them are middle-class people who just may not have any contact or know anyone here or where their own relatives are already too high risk to take on kids that have been exposed to the virus. Hmm. Well, let's go back to the, the financial need, the family need before if I ask my final question, I just want to give some context again, because I think people are spending all day on Twitter. They're seeing debates between, you know, lives versus the economy. But the the need here is kind of getting missed for most people. And can you give an idea of for you on the ground? Yeah. The difference between this time last year and what's happening right now? Yeah, so on a normal month in my child abuse prevention programs, we receive about 350 um, referrals for people who need basic help, basic needs assistance, which is like rent, utilities, food, um, very basic things, diapers. Um, We in April so far, um, the first week of April, we've had 650 requests. We had 650 referrals for families um, in one week. So we have pulled over resources inside the agency from other programs and our staff are working, you know, 12 or 14 hours a day, taking phone calls of people who are desperate. Um, a lot of the people that are contacting us work in the service industry or in sales. And um, many have filed for unemployment, but no check has come yet. Um, so they're kind of in that space in between where, you know, the first of April happened and, They were already um, people who were dependent on maybe not the highest income and, and then it didn't come, Um, you know, so it's, it's been a challenge. Um, You know, the cost for people whose kids, you know, even some of the grandparents who were raising children, um, the kids were previously being fed at least some of their meals, a lot of times breakfast and lunch at school. Um, And now uh, that is not occurring. And if they, Many of them don't have transportation to go actually pick that up. Um, they're having to come up with the money to pay for that. So we're trying to help plug those gaps. 
um, it, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming um, volume of calls. And that's just in Marion County. We do this service in 32 counties across the state. Tina Clore, CEO of Children's Bureau. Uh, your website is childrensbureau.org. That is B-U-R-E-A-U.org. Um, and, and that link will be in our, our show notes on our website if people want to go there and click there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate everything you're doing. It sounds like it's making a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And I appreciate your work. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, uh, I have the pleasure today of speaking to Jay Height, who is the executive director of Shepherd Community Center uh, on the Near East Side. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Shepherd Community Center. What are you? Where are you? What do you do? Yeah, Shepherd Community is serving the Near East Side of Indianapolis for the last 35 years. We are on East Washington between Sherman and Emerson. We've We've been here. We used to be at State in Washington and a little over 15 years ago moved further east and have served this area in a continuum of care, working with children, teens, and their families to about 500 families, as well as serving the neighborhood and, and other residents with additional services. So obviously this is a time unlike any of our memories in, in recent past. So how are you adjusting to help at-risk families during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, we, we pivoted three weeks ago to focus in very much a relief mode to make sure the basic needs of our neighbors are being met, making sure that they have food, making sure they can pay their bills and, and they're not going to be evicted or have any of their utilities shut off. We're working with making sure their medical needs are being met, we are working to continue the education to the 400-plus students we work with every day in our normal programming to make sure they can continue moving forward academically through e-learning. And then we're trying to connect to a community where social isolation is causing all kinds of, of challenges and want to make sure that folks know that uh, they have neighbors who care for them. So let's go through some of those five areas and talk about the various needs and, and how you are, are helping. Let's start with food. How big of a need right now is there in food in some of the families that are at risk? It's overwhelming. So every day we distribute back breakfast and lunch to students. Afternoons we provide meals to probably, say, 200 families so that they have something that they can warm up and eat. Every two weeks, we do a food giveaway of 500 boxes of food. Every Friday, we're doing breakfast in a bag, a partnership with Alanco, where we are providing pork products, milk, eggs, and bread, all uh, raised and, and um, brought to market through Indiana farmers and producers, and so we appreciate that part, uh, partnership. We're working with great organizations like Second Helping, uh, Midwest Food Bank, Gleaners, and partnering with uh, folks like Safeway, where we're purchasing food. It is very difficult, and so hunger is an unfortunate reality, and we're doing everything we can to get food out, uh, sharing some of what we have with others so that uh, other organizations can meet the needs of those that they have relationships with. You know, all of these issues are bigger than any one organization. It's going to take all of us working together, and, and we're blessed to have a lot of great friends 
uh, in the city. So can you give us an idea of the difference between, you know, maybe this time last year or January versus the, the need for food, the demand for food versus now? What's changed? It's 180, 180 degrees. Really? It, it, people have struggled, and I would have said, uh, I would have said a month ago that the challenge was really around access, that we had enough food. Right now, the, the just-in-time supply chain can't keep up with this huge demand, and so it's hard to find food. It's very difficult, and so it's, it's requiring a lot on our behalf uh, to keep people uh, fed, and we've reconstituted our own kitchen where we provide meals to over 2,000 kids every or 2,000 meals to kids every week during our normal programming. So now we're trying to help feed the whole family. Mm. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How much does, you know, people panic buying at the store at Meyer or Kroger or whatever, how, how much does that impact somebody like you? Is that a huge drain? Well, I think it is, it is created a shortfall that, uh, then when we're trying to secure it, I think a lot of folks in central Indiana are blessed that they could stock up, but my neighbors don't have that luxury. And, and so then the, the shelves are empty when they go. So we're starting to see now a few weeks into this, that things like diapers and, and feminine hygiene and shampoo and those personal care items that are very expensive are, and, and you can't use food stamps for, you can't use SNAP for that. Now that's becoming a precious commodity, and we're trying to address that too. And we're telling folks, hey, you can go online and order it and ship it to us, but many times when they go online, stuff's not there. So if people want to donate food or items or goods, do you have a place that they can do that? Do you encourage that? Absolutely. Uh, They can uh, go online and, and find their store, whether it's Target, Walmart, Amazon, wherever they like to shop, and, and then have it shipped to us. And, and, and we're having that happen every day. Uh, some people are stopping by and dropping it off. Uh, you know, the online shopping sure makes it a lot easier for folks to donate. And those products are all things that we're getting out as, as quick as we can. Talking to Jay Height, who is the executive director of the Shepherd Community Center. You can find their website as shepherdcommunity.org, helping the Near East Side. The next focus area in this 120-day plan is family stability, financial assistance. Can you give us an idea of some of the needs there? Sure. It's, it's paying the very basic bills uh, for many of our neighbors who've gotten laid off. Uh, and they're hoping to get the stimulus check. The, the problem with all of that is it's going to take probably into May before those start arriving. And and so that, that uh, creates some difficulty. And so April's going to be a tough month, and so we're trying to help them pay their bills. We're I so appreciate folks like Citizens Gas who have gone out of their way to create ways for our families to keep connected 
to their services. They're they're reaching out and, and saying that they have funds to help. They're making sure that if someone had their water turned off, they turn it back on. That's that's great leadership. I appreciate Citizens Gas for doing that. And Spectrum has given free internet to, uh, for a couple of months to our neighbors as well. And those are great ways that companies who are out there to do business and to make money so that they can keep doing business are being creative and helping our neighbors. But we're also having to help them with some other bills and, and things like cell phones during this time are not a luxury. They're actually needed. And it's the way many of our neighbors actually can go online to fill out their unemployment. Part of the challenge, we're working to make our parking lot a a hotspot because where do you go if you don't have connectivity at home? And the places that most of our neighbors would go are closed. And so we're trying to help them so that they can pull into our lot, they can walk here and, and be able to connect. So would something like a cash donation to Shepherd Community help you with some of that? Or is that about partners, working with partnerships? How can our listeners help you in this area? Well, people can, can donate. They, there's a, a site on our website, the COVID-19 uh, landing spot, where they can go on and, and donate. And, and 100% of that money is going to be used for our response. Um, we, we're spending more money than we normally do, um, but we should. And that's what's needed. We're thankful that we're here and we're able to do this. We're getting about 25 phone calls a day of neighbors, 25 to 50. It averages out that uh, they're calling us saying, hey, I need help with this bill. I need to buy this medicine, that kind of stuff. So speaking of medicine, the next focus area is the medical area. What What is your organization doing in this respect? We have a paramedic uh, in a partnership with Eskenazi that is on our team and We've redeployed him. He's actually going to seniors' homes, making sure that they are being taken care of. If they have some type of chronic health care, we're we're taking scales in. We're taking automatic blood pressure tests, oxygen readers, so that they can monitor themselves. We're working with volunteer doctors that if if someone was to say, hey, uh, um, I'd like to help we're getting volunteer retired docs who are just calling our neighbors to say how what was your blood pressure today and and making sure that the scales are really about are you gaining weight which would tell us that we need to be worried about your heart or uh, you know if, if you gain a lot of weight quickly then our paramedic will go back out and see what what needs to happen we're trying to keep people out of the hospital the the, the assumption for many is that telemedicine will either way folks get their care but you know i'm 54 years old and uh if i want to do technology my adult kids come over and help their old dad because i'm just not very swift with it and and then to expect our neighbors who have never had anything like this being thrust upon them they're, they're not going to know and so we're trying to take ipads into their homes so that they can uh access uh medicine but also trying to teach them how to do that we're buying, we're going to get their medicines for them. We're trying to get them signed up on, uh, delivered their prescriptions to be delivered. Uh, so we're, we're fulfilling very, various roles around medical, uh, really being a conduit of connections to keep people out and making sure they're staying in touch with their, their primary care doctor. And you're actually looking for 25 tablets to help assist with this effort. Is that something that people could donate a tablet or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Um, next up is e-learning, and you have a donor that gave $26,000. And what is some of that money going towards, and how are you helping families get set up with e-learning? Yeah, we, we uh, very quickly, right before school let out, we got 160 Chromebooks and tablets so that the older kids could have a Chromebook, the younger kids. We, we have an elementary school, and making sure all of them had access we we're uh, so they can do e-learning, and we're pushing information out every day. The teachers are teaching through e-learning. We have been working and getting tablets for our middle school and high school students who attend different uh, schools here in the neighborhood, making sure that they can access e-learning. And we're working uh, in partnership with IPS, and and where there's kids in our neighborhood who go to IPS school, but they come to us for after school. We want to make sure they have access. Computers, and so that's sort of our next phase of what we're trying to get together. Okay, and the last in your five focus area is social isolation. What are some ways that you're trying to help people feel more connected? We we're uh, pushing information out to them. We're texting them videos. Uh, we're we're having volunteers who will call them twice a week and just check with them, talk to them, see what's going on, ask them you know, how they're feeling. And, and just that simple phone conversation goes a long way in making sure that our neighbors don't feel like they're forgotten. So we actually, I saw a stat that Indianapolis has been hard hit and a lot of the hotlines, obviously deaths of despair, be it suicide, overdoses, were already yeah. on the rise. I mean, how much of an impact has this had in that area in this crisis in the last three weeks? Well, we hope it's, it's helping move the needle. We don't know, and we may not know for some time, but we're going to do everything we can and, and just keep calling people and connecting with them and let them know that uh, we do believe in the addicts that you're supposed to love your neighbor, and we're going to live that. Have you seen an, I mean, have you seen an increase in overdoses? That's one of my fears is that people will. Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, uh, a week ago was one of the highest spikes we've had in a long time. Mm. We do a, we have a, a support group, and we're hearing back from them incredible pressure. Uh, you know, we're I think we're all struggling with this idea of, of quarantine and being stuck at home and not being able to get out. And then you take folks who have some challenges as it deals with addictions, and those things can can surface quickly. And, and we're trying to, using technology to connect to our neighbors that, that have this challenge to make sure that they don't see that as an option they have to take. Uh, Jay Height, the Executive Director of the Shepherd Community uh, Center, you're doing important, great work. If people want to support you, what are some of the best ways that they can support your work? Well, we would tell folks if, if you would like to, you can donate. You can go to our website. Uh, there's information on there, but you can always go to any of the shopping sites to do donate to buy personal care items, personal hygiene items, as well as food. We'll be faithful to get that out to our families. And if you have questions, you can call us at 317-375-0203, and we will get back to you. Uh, right now, it's really difficult to have volunteers come down because of the health crisis. In the future, that'll we'll be able to have volunteers coming back. Um, but as we said, we want to make sure we're all standing, standing together, six feet apart. Excellent. Thank you. Jay Height of the Shepherd Community Center on the Near East Side. I appreciate your time. 
Thank you, Chris. Uh, we're speaking to restaurants that are making a difference. Obviously, the restaurant industry has been hit hard through the shutdown and the pandemic. And there are a lot of restaurants out there who are doing a lot of good work to help a lot of people. And one of those folks is Danielle Cooney, who is the general manager of Supremacy. And uh, Danielle, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about your restaurant, where you're located, and what do you specialize in? Sure. Um, so we are located right off of Monument Circle on East Market Street, um, right next to Starbucks. Um, we specialize in gourmet soups and salads and paninis. Um, we offer, in normal times, we offer, you know, 13 to 15 soups that revolve every, uh, that rotate every day. Um, and then some classics that stay on the menu all the time. So obviously. And then we do delivery, oh. catering, all of that stuff. Okay, so you do catering. I apologize, I stepped on Mm -hmm. you there. Uh, So obviously this is not normal times and there are, there's a lot of concern for the restaurant industry, obviously, because of, you know, the shift in people's habits and abilities. So how did you initially and how are you continuing to make, obviously you're open and you're, you're doing a lot of different things. How did you come to that conclusion? What, what were your first thoughts as this started to hit? Um, you know, your first thought as a restauranteer when this started, you see, we kind of saw it happening in other cities and knew it, knew it was going to happen. Um, so it was just a matter of when it was going to happen. Um, so we, you know, a week or so prior kind of started thinking of ways that we could, as a, not just a restaurant, but as a small business, um, survive with the potential of a complete shutdown. Um, the other thing that we knew is that we had a product that we just wanted to get in front of as many people as possible, um, without trying to make a profit. Um, we have, we have things in place for a lot of different types of people, the frontline workers, the people that are now jobless, um, all of those types of people, uh, types of people. Um, and we just wanted to try to do what we do best. We feed people. Um, we feed them good, nutritious food, and we wanted to be able to continue doing that um, to lots of different. So let's talk about some of the programs that you've got going on. First, tell us about Feeding the Front Lines. What are you doing in that respect? So the Feed the Front Lines program um, is a program where people can go to our website and order online, and they just that they want to feed the front lines. They can choose however many they want. Um, It is $6 per bowl of soup. Um, So there is a discount on that. Um, And then we are in touch with local hospitals to um, take those bowls of soup to their staff. And it's not necessarily the ER staff. You know, there are units that are directly involved in COVID-19. But there's a lot of other units that have to deal with the same stuff. So we took soup to the Eggman Cancer Center. We've done Community Eats. Um, we're doing Eskenazi on Monday. Um, so that's what that program is. And it's just tra- a way to try to get good food into the people's stomachs that are fighting the hardest for us, you know? Yeah. 
it's tough. My mom is a, an RN and Hendrix community. And obviously it's a very difficult time for, for uh, me, for her and everybody involved. Okay. So it's, you know, not knowing a lot of specifics of what's going on, things at the hip, I can tell you that it's very difficult in those, uh, in those COVID units. Um, so I thank you for yeah. doing that. I know it means a lot to, to the people that are working there. Uh, tell us about sponsor a soup. What, what is that program? So the sponsor soup is fifteen dollars. Um, so there's a little bit of a discount there. And those quarts of soup, um, it's a quart of soup instead of just a bowl, and it's actually being um, taken to um, different community centers, different outreach programs, anybody that has the ability to keep the soup frozen and then distribute it to people that need it. Um, so um, we've partnered with you know the MLK Center. Um, and some of those, uh, the Horizon House and some of that. And people can, again, go on our website, order it, order as many as they want. And then we just take it to the centers as they need stuff. Um, so it's really great. It, again, gets good food into people's stomachs that, you know, may not have, that have just kind of found themselves all of a sudden trying to figure it out, you know? What are you hearing in terms of the need um, there are a lot of programs that are giving soup or giving food in general to different programs. Um, there is a very large need for stuff like that right now. Um, but I think as a city, we are doing a really good job of filling that need. Excellent. And so people can go to your website. Tell us the website, please. It's supremacy.com. So S O U P. R-E-M-A-C-Y.com. And people can find that in the show notes on the podcast or at our website, nowhearthisindy.com. If you want to go and make a $15 donation to help feed a family or help feed the front line. And you're also offering a catering option. Tell us a little bit about that, please. So we're doing two uh, weekly deliveries throughout Marion County and the surrounding nine counties. And it's a family meal deal. So it's a quart of soup a family-sized salad, uh, and a pack of 12 Amelia's dinner rolls um, for $35. It's delivered free of charge to your door. Um, with that program, if you wanted to do something like, if you wanted to do the family meal deal, um, you could also add on a sponsor to or see the front line with that as well. And then we would take those directly to um, the hospitals and the food pantries and stuff. That's great. And, and that you would also find on our website. Um, right. There would be a form for you to fill out, and we would send you an invoice for it. Yeah, go ahead. Tell the website again. Let's let's get it out there as much as we can. It's supremacy.com. S-O-U-P-R-E-M-A-C-Y.com. And you're doing a lot of those deliveries. Have you done delivery before? I mean, how much have you had to expand your delivery options, and how are you handling that? So we have um, always offered delivery in a 16-block radius of downtown, Monday through Friday, 1030 to 3, for kind of your single sandwich delivery orders or single soup delivery orders or, you know, a catering order. Um, we have drastically expanded our delivery area for, like, the family meal deal, and we do, like, a frozen soup delivery every other week as well. Um, we started that back in December, doing it once a month. Um, and are continuing to offer it an increase intervals as people need it. Um, 
So let me uh, let me ask this because a lot of these new strategies that I think a lot of businesses are having to come up with. My my assumption is a lot of those will kind of stick around afterwards. You know, are you looking past this and going, hey, we're doing this thing now and we're going to keep doing it afterwards? Or is it or is it sort of triage for you right now? Have you given thought to the future and how, how your business might change through this? We have, actually. Um, I think that everything we are doing currently, we will continue to do. Um, we will still offer a feed the frontline program. We will still offer sponsored soup. Um, we will still do those frozen soup delivery. We will still do the family meal deals. We won't deliver the family meal deals twice a week, but they will still be available. Um, and they may be something we offer once a month once things kind of go back to normal. Some of that we'll just have to see how how it plays out, you know, um, if there's still enough interest in getting things like that delivered. Um, but to see the front lines, you know, right now it's the nurses and the doctors but in October, it might be the police stations and the fire departments and um, the army base. You know, it's the front lines changes based on how the country is. So that is where our focus would be with that. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining us. I've got one final question for you. And, uh, and it is this, as you're out and you're in the community and you're dropping things off, or you're talking to people as you're setting these things up. What do you think people ought to know as you talk to a lot of these frontline folks? What, what do people need to hear right now? Um, that is a Good question. One of the biggest things that I have heard from specifically people on the front line, the nurses I've talked to, the people that have come out um, to get the food, is really how grateful they are. Um, it really helps boost the morale when they get deliveries like that. Um, they're very appreciative and thankful, and I think they it helps them feel like they're not doing this alone. Um I think just the, the big draw of the community reaching out to help, you know, I can't personally feed the hospital, the entire hospital by myself, but I can donate, you know, 10 or $15 with 500 other people and we can feed the entire hospital. You know, we can feed multiple hospitals. And I think just people coming together and doing that has been really impactful to them. Excellent. Again, that we are talking to Danielle Cooney, who is the general manager of Supremacy and their website. Tell us your website again one more time, please. It's supremacy.com, S-O-U-P-R-E-M-A-C-Y.com. Excellent. So please go help the frontline folks, help people who are in need. We uh, encourage you to go and help a Supremacy in this time. Uh, everybody, Everybody's looking... There's a lot of need, and we thank you, Danielle, for doing your part, and it's, I know it's greatly appreciated by everyone in the audience, so thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. On my timeline, there has been a constant flow of questions about parenting time and issues between two uh, parents that may have custody issues, and so we're going to talk a lot about that today, but first, let's talk about what Kids Voices of Indiana does. So, Lindsay, if you wouldn't mind, tell us, what does Kids Voices do? Yeah, so Kids Voice of Indiana, um, we are actually celebrating our 35th year in 2020. 
So we have been around for a long time and we focus on three main areas. So the first one is what you mentioned Katie um, is the director of. So that is our Children's Law Center of Indiana program. And it has a statewide reach and focuses on education and training for anybody. Um, people that are attorneys, people that are social workers that want to be child advocates. Um, so we do a lot of training and education around that. But a big part of that is education and guidance and free legal information for the public. So we have an educational website. We take phone calls to our office. We have free legal clinics when we're able to do them in person. And um, so that is where we really focus on with the Children's Law Center. And then in addition to that, we also have a guardian ad litem program. And we have volunteers that serve as advocates or guardian ad litems for children in Marion County Family Court. And then we also do supervised visitation at our office. And so we provide that service for uh, non-custodial parents and children to stay, see each other when the judge has decided that there has to be a supervisor present. So we offer that at our office as well. And your website is kidsvoicein.org. Their phone number is 317-558-2870. They have a great FAQ on custody parenting time during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and you can find that PDF in the show notes, but also at their website. And I will say on behalf of Lindsay Scott and Katie Kelsey, this is not legal advice. This is just a, a simple conversation guiding people. Uh, so please, if you have any specific issues, make sure that you contact a, an attorney. Uh, having been around friends who have gone cust through custody battles, Katie, there seems to be one basic guiding principle in uh, the, the mind of judges and the minds of people like yourself. And can you explain what that particular principle is? Yeah, so absent really extraordinary circumstances of, of a parent's own um, bad behavior, it's really in the best interest of children to have frequent and ongoing contact with both their parents. So courts are going to presume it's in a child's best interest to continue as normal with the normal custody arrangement and normal parenting time arrangements. Um, the pandemic doesn't change that. It, um, it may make things more complicated, but it doesn't change that and it doesn't make a parent unfit. The law presumes that a parent is a fit parent who can take care of their child. So even if you live in a location with travel restrictions, normal parenting time as outlined by parenting guidelines, which is set by the state or in a custody agreement should be followed. Yes. So the executive order for Indiana specifically provides for um, travel relating to um, dealing with custody and parenting time arrangements as an essential piece of travel. So that you know, is a pretty strong indicator that parenting time and custody arrangements should continue as normal. The executive order also provides that care for minor child is part of an essential activity. So parents should continue on as normal with their normal parenting time arrangements. Lindsay, that doesn't stop some parents from not reading executive orders or from looking this information up. What should a parent do if they show up to pick up their kid or they, they, they're stopped at the door? I'm not picking up the child. You're not allowed to take the kid. You've, you have to continue to go to work. What should a parent do if that situation occurs, in your opinion? 
So I think that's a, that's a tough question because I think um, it's that is a situation that's very stressful for both parents, but also can be traumatic for the kids. So I think the goal should always be to minimize that trauma and that stress on that child. I think people's first instinct would be to call the police if something like that occurred. And honestly, they have a lot going on during this time. So their ability to be able to assist may be minimized. And oftentimes, they don't really want to get involved in civil issues anyway. I think the best thing to do is really document, you know, what is happening, not by recording. I don't mean that, but I mean, keep real good notes of dates and times and and things like that. So, you know, if there is a certain custody exchange or parenting time that you should have had that you did not get. In addition, the courts are still accepting what we would call an emergency petition regarding something that's going on. So if somebody needs to file something with the court about the inability to see their child or being withheld their child or something to that effect, um, they could definitely contact their attorney or a attorney or our office to get information on how to do that. Um, because of course, everything is only being filed electronically right now. So I would say, you know, the best thing to do is really try to communicate between the parents, be flexible, think about the children's best interests. Obviously, I know things are going to happen, but we want to try to minimize the stress and trauma on everybody involved right now. Okay, so courts for for these sorts of things are open, but what do you say to either Lindsey Scott, president CEO of Kids Voices of Indiana, or Katie Kelsey, who's the director of the Children's Law Center of Indiana? What do you say to a parent who's concerned about their child's safety or their own safety, and the other parent is someone that is deemed essential? They're, let's say, working in a grocery store or working um, landscaping or something, and they're out, they're moving about in this pandemic, and the other parent is concerned about everyone's welfare. Like, how do you deal with that as, uh, how do the courts deal with that? I guess is the better way to say it. So this is, um, this is kind of a benefit of having a legal community like we have in Indiana, because a lot of family law attorneys and judicial officers have had really informal conversations about like, okay, we're in this crazy time. What should we expect? What should we kind of, how should we guide our clients? What what do you want to see from us judges? And um, we've kind of come to a consensus that you know, still parenting time and custody should proceed as normal. You should adhere to your orders. If there are really complicating factors, like a child is a medically complex child and they've got special concerns, you know, maybe that might be a situation where you need to communicate with the other parent and figure out like, hey, you know, can we figure out another way to, to do this? Should the child come stay with me for a while? Should we figure out a different quarantine period? You know, what kind of safety procedures are we feeling? So the courts are still really wanting to emphasize, you know, that this is a chance for parents to work together and, you know, show their ability to do this. But absent that, you know, they still have the ability to turn to the court and say, we have this true disagreement and emergency. So, yeah, you might find situations where one parent is a is a frontline worker and is constantly getting exposed to this virus. And the other parent legitimately has concerns about exposing the child and their own family unit to it. 
So that's, you know, that's a concern that if they can't work out together, that may be a good reason to consult an attorney or, or to turn to the court, especially if there are underlying complicating medical issues. But I will say that unilaterally withholding parenting time or you know, taking a child and not returning them to the custodial parent is not going to be looked on favorably by the courts when this is all over. And they will definitely remember what happened. Is that generally considered contempt and something that a judge would look very unfavorably on? Well, I can't, you know, ever predict what a particular judicial officer is going to do. Um, you know, it certainly is a possibility, but, you know, these are also really extraordinary times. So a parent's good faith concerns may may undercut that. So it's it's very hard to predict, but using it to your advantage, using a situation like this to your advantage is something that's really not going to go over well. Yeah. Um, so and what too, are, just, go ahead, sorry. Lindsay. So just after the executive order was issued, you know, talking about some of the things Katie mentioned about, you know, essential travel and things for custody and parenting time, the Indiana Supreme Court also issued an order um, that basically indicated the same thing. We want to make sure that everyone understands that custody and parenting time and child support, for that matter, should stay the same. And it really indicates at the end that you know, if you can't pay your child support, if you have legitimate concerns about the safety of your children, then, you know, the courts are the the source to get the help for that. And they basically make a statement that, you know, we know that this is uh, unprecedented time, but the best interest in the health of, you know, the children is the main priority. So, I mean, they just, they tried to issue, you know, additional guidance, um, but I think as Katie's mentioned several times, you know, the key is that the importance is that everybody wants the child to be able to see both parents as much as possible, given extreme circumstances. So what what about uh, folks that may have out of state parents? I mean, you're, you, one parent lives in Kentucky and other parent lives in Indiana. How is that sort of being determined? I can't speak to other states executive orders, but. Um, generally I've kind of perused them and they almost all include some kind of exception for necessary travel for the care of minor children and so on. So at this point, I would say that they're mostly in line with Indiana's and that, you know, dealing with your children is an essential function of life and you should continue as ordered, even across state lines. Now, you know, <laughs> there may, there may come a time where that changes, but gosh, I hope not. But it, uh, you know, at that point, then my my information would change. So, what about spring break and summer vacation? Because this is obviously going to go into summer vacation. How are you seeing some things pop up around that at this point, Lindsay? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think there's been um, legitimate confusion based upon just the changes in schedule. So. You know, school let out early, schools, you know, not going back this year. And so what you have to remember is, is that when we set spring break and summer parenting time, that was set at the beginning of the year when the schools issued their school calendars. So you should still go to your school's, you know, school calendar and keep the same schedule. So everything outside of spring break and summer that was already planned is still the same. 
essentially that means that spring break, if it's two weeks for your school district, just because school was out doesn't mean that spring break is now five weeks. So there's e-learning time in there, um, you know, things like that that you have to remember. So spring break, normal parenting time, summer parenting time should all remain the same as you planned at the beginning of the year. So what if the other parent wants to take the kid to Indiana Beach? What if they're going to just break the order and uh, take the kid uh, on vacation? What What do you do then? So, so that's um, obviously a violation of the stay-at-home order. Um, vacations, trips, they're not part of of, you know, what we would consider to be an essential activity. Um, so that, that would be a problem. There is a function on the um, Department of Health website, but that mostly relates to reporting businesses that are violating stay-at-home orders. There isn't really anything in particular for um, individuals doing that. So I would say that if you're in a situation with your, with an your child's other parent where they are indicating that they're going to take the child to Florida for summer vacation or spring break, I guess that would be the more accurate example at this point, then that would be a situation where if you can't work it out together, you probably need to um, bring it to the courts. Okay. So you mentioned child support and with, you know, 20, 30 million people newly unemployed, that's going to become a concern how does what does one do if they've lost their job and they're unable to pay child support or they're uh, may get behind like how how does that worked out in the courts or how should couples work that out so the um this was included in the supreme court order and kind of discussed this but basically we know that's going to come up what parents should try to do is pay what they can so if that means that right now they can only pay $5, they are still making a good faith effort to pay child support. So what they should also do is, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do, but they should notify the court and ask for an emergency modification of child support. Because what happens potentially is that when everything calms down and they're able to get back in court and have their child support recalculated, that amount of child support will backdate to when that petition was filed with the court. So that can help somebody in this situation. I think that, you know, I, again, I can't predict what the courts will do, but I do think that they're going to have to be flexible uh, given the economic state right now in our community. And I think that as long as parents really try and are making an effort, I think that they will look favorably upon that. Um, obviously they're gonna, you know, so many people are filing for unemployment, losing their jobs, out of jobs, furloughed, whatever it is. And I think that, you know, that's going to be a new issue that we're going to have to deal with when we get back into court. And so I, I don't really think anybody can predict how that's going to go right now, but I do think that there's going to be some flexibility around it. The overwhelming theme we've been getting from judicial officers, from lawmakers, from, from just about everywhere is let's just do our best. So, you know, if your best is, you know, keeping a receipt of sending money, you know, like keeping check records of sending a check, then that's what we do. Like, that's how we're going to handle it. And we will figure it out on the back end. Yep. 
seems reasonable. Again, I'm talking to Lindsay Scott, president and CEO of Kids Voices of Indiana, and Katie Kelsey, director of the Children's Law Center of Indiana. Their website is kidsvoicein.org, and they have a great FAQ that is in the show notes on the podcast or at their website that gives some uh, advice, some guidance on custody and parenting time. Again, none of this is legal advice. Consult an attorney for your specific needs. Uh, so my final question is what is or about to start creeping in, which is what if one parent becomes sick or the child becomes sick with COVID-19, how should the courts or parents deal with the fact that let's say one of the parents is incapacitated potentially, uh, who, who makes the medical decisions at that point? And I mean, it's a sticky issue, but what, what are the discussions uh, ongoing about that? So the situation that you're worried about is a situation where there's no available parent left to care for a child or to make medical decisions for a child. You know, if there are two, you know, functioning parents, then if one parent is incapacitated, the other parent still has that ability to make decisions for the child. So what we're trying to encourage people to do is to plan ahead Um, nobody wants to think that they're going to get this virus and that the worst will happen, but we've seen lots of cases of perfectly healthy people being hospitalized and completely unavailable to provide care and supervision or make decisions for their children. So we recommend making some kind of family safety plan in the event that a sole parent with no other involved parent in the land has or that you know, married parents or parents who are a functioning unit have so that they can make plans for the event that there's no one there to make decisions for the child. Um, you need to pick a person or several persons, you know, given the, the widespread nature of this pandemic, who can um, care for your children and who you trust to supervise them and give them the attention they need and to make medical decisions for them. You can accomplish that informally, or you can accomplish it more formally through a parental power of attorney, or even something like a standby guardianship. And those materials are on our website. So Katie has put up forms that parents can use and some instructions, um, and those are coming in Spanish as well. And I think another thing to remember is even if you are in a co-parent relationship, so you're married or you're not married, but you have joint legal custody, you might want to talk to each other about what would happen if both of you got sick, um, you know, and, and still have a person. I think it's always good to have an emergency plan. My husband and I went ahead and figured out several backup caregivers for our kids, because just in case we are both unavailable, we need someone to be able to take care of them and to make decisions for them in case they get sick as well. Yeah, and I've had conversations with my family members about it as well. So final question to you both, what is the thing that you see on a daily basis that you wish everybody knew about your work? What, what would you say to people listening? You know, for me, I think what is so key for me about our work is how preventative it is. It's really hard to, you know, explain our impact when it's a prevention service, but by everything we do, we are essentially working to prevent children from being abused and neglected. 
And so whether we're directly providing best interest representation for a child as their advocate, or whether it is providing the you know, best practice legal information to a parent or a caregiver or a grandparent, they are then able to take that information and use it to protect that child. So really everything we do, um, you know, at the end of the day is about preventing child abuse and neglect. And that's why for me, it's so important and so unique as well. Are we seeing an increase in child neglect and abuse as everyone's staying home? Like, have you seen any statistics or anecdotal evidence that that's occurring? I've seen anecdotal evidence. Um, I'm hearing from police officers that they're having a lot more domestic violence runs and there are often children involved. And what is really concerning for us is that we've actually, compared to the same time last year, we've seen a dip in calls to the um, statewide child abuse and neglect hotline, which at first you're like, oh, that seems great. There's less calls. But the problem is, is that less people are making calls because there's no access to children. All of the people who would normally report child abuse and neglect, like teachers, counselors, friends, par- other, you know, friends, parents, other people like that have been kind of ripped out of these children's lives and there are no extra eyes on kids. So we're really worried about what we will see on the back end of this. That's a really delicate issue because if you're the other parent and you suspect some form of abuse, neglect of some sort, I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you raise that in a way that doesn't look opportunistic? It's very hard. (laughs) Yeah. What were you going to say, Lindsay? I was just going to say, yeah, Katie's right. It is very hard. Um, And so I think that, you know, in Indiana, I think everybody forgets that every single citizen of Indiana is a mandated reporter. So, you know, if you truly believe that your child is being abused and neglected, you have the obligation to report that to the hotline. So, you know, I think if you do that, you know, with a good faith and legitimate reason, um, you know, that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but it is very tough. And they should also, you know, parents should keep in mind too what I had said earlier that when we are on the other side of this, courts are probably not going to be overly thrilled with people who used this situation to their advantage and potentially exhausted resources like the Department of Child Services and place those resources in danger by making claims that were not based in reality. Right. Okay. Uh, so, Katie, what is the one thing that you, you see daily that, man, I just wish everybody knew this? Uh, well, I would really, I would have to echo a lot of what Lindsay said for our own organization. And um, in the context of this particular uh, pandemic, I would say that I think that this is really illustrating how important community is to children. Children have had so many aspects of community removed from their lives, and now they are isolated into a very small unit. And I think that this will really highlight how important it is for communities to work together to help protect children from abuse and neglect and other forms of endangerment. And I hope that in the end, some good can come out of that and more resources and time and attention and funding can be given to organizations like ours and other organizations across the states that help protect children. 
What are some things that either of you have seen that can help that with help, help kids feel more community in this time? I mean, I've seen some beautiful things like uh, kids that have birthdays, their family has parades where they're driving by and honking or, you know, what are, what are some things that you're seeing that kind of help solve that problem, Katie? So I have seen in my own neighborhood kids leaving messages for each other with chalk on sidewalk or on the sides of their houses. Um, I have seen families actually rearrange their backyards so that like playgrounds are near each other, but certainly far enough apart to be safe so that kids can kind of play on their playgrounds right across from each other. Um, There's been a lot of, in my house, a lot of Zoom dates with classmates. So they, you know, they listen to music and eat the same snacks together, you know, and they do crazy things like make faces and show each other the chewed up food in their mouths, whatever it is that kids do. So using technology, but then also using some more like old school methods of communication by, you know, two tin cans and a (laughs) a rope. (laughs) What about you, Lindsay? So one thing I've been seeing a lot of is like um, scavenger hunts. And reforming them in ways that, you know, because not everybody has access to computer or tablet or whatever it is. So within the home scavenger hunt, over the phone scavenger hunt, I've seen like a family tree one where you call, you know, different people in your family to get different information about, you know, who was born this year, who's been to this state or whatever it is. I saw another one that was um, a gratitude scavenger hunt. So it was finding things, you know, in your life or in your home or in your backyard, you know, that you're grateful for in certain ways. So um, that's something I saw that I thought was pretty great. So when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, uh, and finally, I want to ask, what does Kids Voices of Indiana, like, what is your main focus? You're probably focused on a lot of issues right now surrounding this, but what are some of the day-to-day things that you mentioned a guardian ad litem system and supervised visitation? Those are maybe things that people have heard of. But you can, can you give a brief description of what those two entail? Absolutely. So the guardian ad litem program um, is very essential. And to your listeners, I hope too, because we run that program using volunteers. So it is a fantastic way for somebody to get involved with our agency as a volunteer and you do not need any background information or training. We train you in-house and what they do is they serve as an advocate for children in family court. So these are kids that are going through divorces, adoptions, guardianships, or any kind of custody or parenting time dispute that's heard in Marion County court, civil court. Um, And so we do that. We use volunteers who go out, meet with the families, do an investigation, meet the kids, counselor, parents, grandparents, talk to the teachers, and really provide the court with a holistic picture of what this child's life is really like and where would this child be the most safe and stable, um, you know, at the end of the court case, basically. So we're helping the court system make these decisions for these children that are the best for them. Uh, And our staff attorneys then support those volunteers. We provide information in court. Uh, We put on our own case, just like a mom or dad or grandparent does. Um, But everything we do is for that child. So that program is really essential to doing that. Excellent. Well, uh, Katie, anything you wanted to add to that? 
Nope, that about sums it up. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Again, their website is kidsvoicein.org, and they have a great FAQ about custody, parenting time, and the COVID-19 pandemic, so please check that out. Please share this. Lindsay, Katie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yes, thank you. And today, my guest is Chad Priest, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Red Cross Indiana. And uh, they have a message for all of us. They are experiencing a blood shortage. So, Chad Priest, thank you so much for joining me. Chris, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So, first off, what is the website that everybody should uh, continue to monitor if they want information and updates from Red Cross? Uh, It's very easy. Redcross.org will get you news, information, give you a a portal to donate blood, schedule a blood donation appointment, um, or to donate funds, as well as to volunteer. Redcross.org. So what is happening right now with uh, blood donations, and why why are we speaking today? Chris, we've seen uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic uh, began, at least uh, acutely in the United States, so think back 20 days or so, less than that even, We've had 4,000 blood drives canceled in the United States. Uh, that is a result of businesses and schools closing. And, and you know, a lot of people may not realize so many of our uh, blood donations come from schools, colleges, high schools, as well as companies. So those have closed. We've had 4,000 cancellations. That's led to us losing over 100,000 units of blood. And that's just the numbers uh, where they stand now. Every day that is compounding. In Indiana alone... Uh, uh, midweek at 150 drives canceled with over 5,000 units lost. The cancellations are coming so quickly, it's very difficult for us to keep track of them. So it's a, it's a severe shortage we're finding ourselves in. Our projections are that this shortage will exponentially grow in the coming days and weeks. So what impact on hospitals and, and patients does that kind of shortage have? Well, it, it, it's for a long, long, long time, scientists have been trying to figure out a way to replace human blood with something synthetic, and it just can't happen. The only way to replace human blood is with other human blood. So without it, there are going to be a lot of people who we are at risk of not giving them what they need. So think, for example, of uh, we've all had someone in our lives impacted by cancer. Uh, transfusion medicine uh, is a key focus of a lot of cancer care. Uh, We uh, know that in trauma, motor vehicle accidents, things like that, there's a need. Surgical procedures, the list goes on and on. Blood products are an essential component of modern American medicine. And without them, we could see a lot of people becoming very ill or sick, maybe even uh, much more so than through the COVID-19 pandemic itself. In other areas, I know the Red Cross is a global organization. How have we seen uh, the Red Cross deal with this blood shortage in places like Italy and other places where you operate? Uh, You're right. The Red Cross is a movement, a global movement. I can't speak to the specific blood challenges in every country. Not every country uh, does the Red Cross collect blood, so our services do vary from place to place. But, But I think we should all be feeling very good about the fact that our Red Cross global movement is fully mobilized because it's not just blood. Here in, in Indiana, for example, uh, the Red Cross is mobilizing our disaster workforce. It's going to take a lot of lift for us to be able to continue to provide the disaster services that Hoosiers rely on every day. We're entering into the spring tornado and flood season. Uh, that's a very active time in Indiana, and we're having to make dramatic changes and modifications to our systems. 
to ensure that we don't degrade those services. Uh, we continue to serve military members and their families every single day. Those services can't stop. So our Red Cross, with about 138 years of Clara Barton's DNA, literally, in our veins, uh, we're fully mobilized. But this is going to be an unprecedented effort uh, by the American Red Cross and all the Red Cross societies around the globe. Talking to Chad Priest, who is the CEO of the Red Cross of Indiana. Their website is redcross.org. So how are you trying to meet those challenges? I mean, it's hard to get people out to volunteer. Um, so, so what does that look like for you? How do you do these prep in a time of quarantines? Well, one of the things we're, we're reminding folks is that it's so critical that we are applying good social physical distancing. This is such an important feature of our overall epidemic control, and we're relying on our public health partners to guide us in those efforts. But that social distancing cannot mean social disengagement. Now more than ever, neighbors and community members have to resolve to look after one another. We offer a few ways to do that. We've partnered with the state of Indiana, the Family and Social Services Administration, uh, to offer psychological first aid training uh, for mental health workers and others. Uh, we've had over 1,500 people sign up for that training just in the last few days, and we're going to be making additional training available. We're also asking neighbors to do very simple things, like check on one another. It seems, it seems silly, but, you know, a lot of us don't know the name and phone number of the person that's right next door to us, even though we could get in our house and Skype with someone half a world away. We can't overemphasize the importance of staying connected. We are going to have to lean on each other for help. Uh, and then, of course, we need volunteers. And even if you're home uh, and unable to leave, we are able uh, to get you trained to volunteer through online training and online courses. And you can sign up at redcross.org, and we need you now. A lot of our volunteers are in the 60 to 65 age group, and we know many of them will have increased restrictions on movement and et cetera. So now is the time to broaden our appeal for volunteers as well. So if you're working in a virtual situation to volunteer for the Red Cross, what are some of the things that you would be doing? Well, we start everyone out with training. You know, unlike a lot of volunteer opportunities, uh, at the Red Cross, volunteers are 97% are of our workforce. So volunteers do everything in our organization, and that requires some really intentional training up front. Almost all of our training is either already virtual, web-based, where it's not, we're making modifications to offer that training through teledistance. Once trained, we've got opportunities that range from helping us secure and locate blood drives, helping us staff those blood drives, um, uh, helping us prepare for disasters, responding to disasters. We do a lot of telecase work, and of course, our service to armed forces work is always remote. So there are a lot of opportunities to do a lot of good right from where you may be sitting. So when you have these blood drives, what measures are you taking to make sure that everybody involved is safe? The first thing that's important to note is that it is perfectly safe to get and receive blood because COVID-19 and, in fact, any respiratory virus cannot be transmitted via blood. So the blood supply itself is safe, and there's no more risk to donate blood than anything else. We're taking some extraordinary efforts at our drives, including temperature screenings at the door. We've increased social distancing uh, in our operations so that our beds are farther apart. Uh, we, we are avoiding or eliminating any sort of cues or waiting we can do that in a number of ways, depending on the physical building itself, limiting it to no more than six people in any given space. And, of course, our phlebotomists and technicians are some of the best in the country. They're extraordinary health care providers. You'll see them applying uh, best-in-class evidence-based use of personal protective equipment, wiping down services, uh, surfaces, et cetera. 
So, final question to Chad Priest, who is the CEO of the Red Cross of Indiana. In your work every day, what is the one thing that you wish everybody listening could see or understand that you're you're just going, this is obvious? I wish everyone would stay home. Uh, some of us have to be out for our work, healthcare workers, humanitarian workers. Uh, I'm, I'm out today, and what I'm seeing uh, it concerns me. We need to listen to the advice of public health authorities and our government officials and remain home. I am confident uh, that Hoosiers will be able to not only survive this epidemic but thrive through it. But we have to start by making decisions that are in the best interest of everyone. Stay home. Check on your neighbor. Find a way to be socially engaged. So go to redcross.org, donate your blood, uh, donate funds if you can, register to volunteer, uh, and don't give up. Stay the course. I think that's the message we all need to be sending each other and know that your Red Cross is standing beside you. All right, Chad Priest, that website again is redcross.org. If you are home and you don't have much going on, please hit up the Red Cross, help organize with them.